The second rule of time jumping. Don't leave anything behind. Oh. The third rule of time jumping. Don't bring anything back. Okay, that, that's number two and three. What's rule number one? Yeah. No matter what. No matter how small, never change anything in the past. Nothing. You kill a bee, and maybe the flower it was going to pollinate doesn't grow. And the seeds it was going to spread don't get spread. And the animal that was going to eat the vegetation doesn't have the food to eat, and it dies. And it was carrying the genes for a new kind of animal which doesn't get to occur. And it alters the course of evolution. A single bee. And the farther back you go, the more catastrophic any changes could be. So, rule number one? Don't change anything. Gentlemen and lady, today you stood shoulder to shoulder with Columbus discovering America, Armstrong stepping on the moon, Brubaker landing on Mars. You are true pioneers on the very last frontier, time. On behalf of all of us here at Time Safari Incorporated, I congratulate you on a truly thrilling hunt. Welcome back, everybody, to Take Me to Your Reader, where we discussed adapted science fiction at its best and worst. I'm Colin. I'm James. And I'm Seth. Today, we're going to be talking about our first Ray Bradbury story, A Sound of Thunder. Uh, Ray Bradbury has, I want to say, 65 different adaptations, most of them from the Ray Bradbury Theater. Um, but this is one of the more better known ones because of the 2005 movie. I'm not sure that's necessarily why it's well known. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can be known for good and bad things. True. And uh, to help us with our discussion today, we have a special guest. His name is Phil Nichols, and he is the, uh, and Phil, tell me if I get this wrong, you are the senior advisor to the board for the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies at Indiana University. Is that all right? That's pretty good. Yeah, that's right. Thanks. Can you tell us a little bit about the center and, and what they do there and what they have there? Sure. The Center for Ray Bradbury Studies was set up in about 2007 um, by two uh, leading scholars of Bradbury uh, by the name of John Eller, who is kind of a historian um, and also a biographer of Bradbury, and Bill Tuponce, who's uh, kind of a science fiction theorist. And the two of them um, independently were working on studying Bradbury, and they both happened to be at the same institution. And they got together, they co-wrote a book called Ray Bradbury, The Life of Fiction, um, and then they've essentially merged their research collections together and then added a, a lot of material to the research collection. So it's a kind of a, um, a research resource. Um, and a couple of years ago, when Ray passed away, um, much of the material from Ray's office um, found its way to the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies. So there's a huge amount of material directly from Ray's files. So there are scripts, there are manuscripts, correspondence, um, all sorts of personal knickknacks that uh, Ray had in his, in his office, typewriters, film projectors, awards, posters, all sorts of things. Um, so it's kind of a, a kind of a a museum, except it's not being set up as a museum just yet. They're, they're trying to um, set up something as a permanent um, public display at the moment, but most of it is research archive, if you like. How did you become involved with the centre? Well, I independently have been researching Bradbury. I'm, I'm very interested in his media work, his film work, his script writing. Um, and I got in contact with John Eller probably about 10 years ago. Um, and I knew that he was doing research. He knew I was doing research. We shared information um, and we found each other to be useful information resources as well. 
um, and I was invited to um, join the board when the when the um, centre was being set up. So I've I've been a member of the advisory board pretty much from the beginning, um, and also on the um, editorial board of the journal that the centre publishes as well. So the way you talk about it, it sounds like there's quite a bit of Ray Bradbury research. I haven't noticed that in any of the other authors that we've we've uh, read or watched yet. What mm. makes Ray Bradbury so special? I think the answer is going to be different for every researcher, to be honest. I think one thing is that this is a guy who started off very much a genre writer. He started off in the science fiction and fantasy field, but broke out of it. He was one of the first authors to to break out of that ghetto, if you like. Um, so that, make, that makes him quite important. Um, also, he lived an incredibly long time and continued writing all the way through his life. He, he died in his 90s um, and was still writing right up to his final days, really. So it's simply the, the sheer longevity of his career um, is one of the things that makes him interesting. What I personally find interesting is, is the media stuff. Um, he's known as a short story writer and a novelist, but he also wrote a ton of screenplays, as you alluded to the Ray Bradbury Theatre and those 60-odd scripts, um, each one of which were written by Ray himself. So he was a very prolific um, screenwriter, and I find that fascinating. Yeah, I had read some short stories of his, I think, back in junior high. Um, and it was it was a treat to start rereading some of these. The collection is the uh, uh, Ray Bradbury's A Sound of Thunder and Other Stories. Mm. And I was amazed because I was expecting to see solely science fiction. And I was really pleasantly surprised to read stories that weren't in that genre. In fact, I think my favorite one is A Sound of Summer Running. Yes, yes. Well, it, I mean, that, that's a very um, – that particular book um, – really has a very mixed collection of stories in it. Um, the first book that Bradbury published was actually fantasy stories, sort of horror stories from Weird Tales, and that was called Dark Carnival. Um, and his second book was The Martian Chronicles, which is science fiction-ish. Um, then came The Illustrated Man, which again is science fiction. Um, after that, he really broadened out quite a lot. So you get Fahrenheit 451, okay, science fiction, but you get Dandelion Wine, which is anything but science fiction. Um, and then really through the 1960s, 70s, 80s, he's publishing and writing all sorts of stories. And the science fiction really is only a very small proportion of the total body of work, but it's what he's best known for. Yeah. Kind of surprising, though, because his other writing is so good as well. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I, I found reading some of the short stories just that the, the quality of the prose is outstanding. Absolutely. Yeah, very early in his career, people were telling him that he was a poet. Um, and, and he took it literally in a way because he, he, he always wanted to write poetry, but he said that he was very bad at it to begin with. And it was only, I think, <laughs> sort of around 1960, something like that, when he was about 40 years old, that he found his ability to write poetry as such. Some people don't rate his poetry very highly. It's not something I'm particularly interested in, I have to say. Um, but when he's writing prose, he is very poetic. So, Phil, um, just kind of by way of doing a little more background on you, are, are you a science fiction fan from way back? And that's how you kind of became connected to the centre, to Ray Bradbury in general? Um, sort of, yeah. Um, I, many, many years ago, I was the information officer of the British Science Fiction Association. 
Um, oh, nice. And I, but I kind of moved away from science fiction quite a lot. But I always stuck with Bradbury. I always found him interesting. And as I say, the, the media aspect I always found very intriguing. And since he was doing his TV show in the, the 80s and 90s, um, even though I kind of lost interest in science fiction a little bit, I was still very interested uh, in him. And so I, I kept that interest. Um, I, I had the opportunity some years ago to start doing a PhD. And I decided that since Bradbury's work was the thing that I knew most about, that would be the logical thing to do a PhD on. So that's really when I sort of got serious about it. And that's really when I made the, the solid connections with the Bradbury Centre. Uh, I, I noticed you said science fiction. And as we've talked with people, we've noticed there's a pretty broad range of what people want to call that genre. Yeah. So are you a science fiction, uh, well, an ex-science fiction fan, a sci-fi fan, or speculative fiction fan, would you say? <laughs> Um, in everyday life, I would say science fiction because people don't know what speculative fiction means. But if I'm talking to sort of specialist people like you, then I would probably say speculative fiction because I think it, it covers a wider range of things. But it's also non-specific because almost anything can be speculative. So mm -hmm. I, I quite like that as a term because it is so flexible. I never say sci-fi. Maybe it's because I'm of a certain age, but when I was growing up, sci-fi was a derogatory term for science fiction. So um, you, you use it to describe some a, a bad film, for example. You see a bad film and you say, oh, that's just sci-fi. <laughs> Whereas if it's good, you might say it's science fiction. Yep. And if it's... We, we've been corrected on that in the past. <laughs> yep. Well, we, we interact with a number of other podcasts as well, sure. um, and a lot of them have sci-fi right there in the title, yeah. mm -hmm. and, yeah. and they don't know what they're, yeah. what they're stepping in. <laughs> so, And actually, when we got um, from Amazon, we got the Ray Bradbury Theater. And and right plastered all along the outside is classic sci-fi. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> bad branding. <laughs> well, Ray really disliked um, having any kind of label stuck on his work. Um, mm. When The Martian Chronicles was first published in 1950 by a respectable mainstream hardcover publisher, it, it wasn't a, a pulp publisher, it was a, a respected um, New York publishing house, um, he didn't expect to have any kind of branding stuck on his work, but lo and behold, there was a little thing that said science fiction. And he hated that because, in part, he, he believed that the Martian Chronicles was not science fiction. He always said everything that's in the Martian Chronicles is impossible. So therefore, it is not science fiction. So he really objected to that label. Interesting. Yeah. He, he, did, he also said that the only science fiction book he ever wrote was Fahrenheit 451. And I find that interesting. And today as well. we'd, we'd put that under, um, you know, dystopian, right? Which which is kind yeah. of a subcategory now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a temptation to, to kind of over categorize things, and and it, you know it's nice to just take an author's work for what it is and and not try to to pin it down on exactly what we have to call it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the labels are useful if you're trying to point somebody in the right direction. So if somebody says. Uh, who should I be reading? Um, you sort of ask them a few questions and you say, oh, you seem to be interested in dystopias. So maybe you'd be interested in Bradbury, George Orwell, mm -hmm. Aldous Huxley, yeah. Yeah, that kind of thing. But apart from that, I don't think labels are, are terribly useful at all. 
Yeah, I think it cuts both ways because there are people who will go into a bookstore and studiously avoid the science fiction section, and there are others who will go there specifically just to look at that section. Yeah, sure. And miss everything in the the other one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and we've talked about here um, where we've we've covered books like Contact by Carl Sagan, and that was not categorized in our library as science fiction. It was just in adult fiction. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine people being very disappointed um, if they go by that kind of categorization. I always, mm-hmm. when I go into a bookshop and I see science fiction and I see the little Bradbury section, I'm always quite annoyed when I see dandelion wine sitting there because it is mm. in no way is that science fiction there's not a not a word of that book is science fiction and yet because it's Bradbury it gets shelved as science fiction and I can imagine people buying that and then being really cheesed off as we say mm-hmm. um, <laughs> because it's not what it's been sold as yeah huh. well so if someone was going to start with reading Ray Bradbury after they've read The Sound of Thunder and watched The Sound of Thunder media, Mm. what would you recommend they start reading? Well, ah, that's a very good question. I would always point them to short stories rather than novels, because I think Bradbury really is a short story writer more than anything else. And I think I would point them to one of the compendium volumes. There are are two really quite massive compendiums. One's called um, Bradbury Stories, and the other one's called The Stories of Ray Bradbury. And each one of them has a hundred stories, um, but they don't overlap. They're, they're completely complementary volumes. The, the, nice. the contents have been chosen very carefully. And either one of those gives you a perfect introduction to Bradbury. Um, and if you don't fancy reading a hundred stories, well, skip a few. But there's such variety in, in both, mm-hmm. volu- both of those volumes. So those are the ones I'd point people to. Yeah, I was amazed looking at our library system at the at the number of actual anthologies that they had mm-hmm. from from Ray Bradbury. Mm-hmm. Um, because way back, I don't know, ten years ago, I think I read the R is for Rocket collection, yep. and then there's the a, a Sound of Thunder and other stories. I just checked out the Golden Apples of the Sun, which is another collection, yep. and I think those ones do have some overlap. They do because R is for Rocket, for instance, is in the Golden Apples of the Sun, right. and it's in the R is for Rocket, obviously, and yeah. it was in the one you had as well, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a complicated publishing history there. The, the original um, book that um, Sound of Thunder appeared in was called The Golden Apples of the Sun. And that was a um, sort of a standard Bradbury um, collection of stories. It actually included most of his award-winning stories of, of the mm. 1940s and 50s, some of which were science fiction, some of which were not. Um, Later on, when the compendium volumes began appearing, like Bradbury Stories, which I think came out in 1980, that then got split into separate smaller volumes because they found the paperback would have been too big, so they split it up. And then you started seeing these kind of what I call made-up collections, um, Mm. which are kind of remixes of the earlier collections. Um, I think R is for rocket and S is for space. Um, The contents for those might have been chosen by Ray himself. I can't remember now, but those were always intended as kind of greatest hits books. Um, Mm. And then A Sound of Thunder and Other Stories is kind of a remix of The Golden Apples of the Sun. But it it all gets a bit muddy, unfortunately, with the the reprints. Mm. Well, with so many stories and such a long publishing history, that's probably pretty easy to happen. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I do often worry that publishers are, are trying to get uh, pull, uh, pull the wool over people's eyes and sell them the same thing twice. 
because, you know, if you've already got a Golden Apples of the Sun and then you see a book called A Sound of Thunder and Other Stories, you think, oh, I must have that as well. But it's pretty much the same book. So That's kind of what it sounds like to me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, to talk about the exploitation, when uh, after Ray passed away, his house was sold and someone was going to pull the house down and, and another person stepped in and rescued a bunch of lumber and sold uh, a numbered limited set of bookends. Yeah. And I think they were $450 per set. Made out of the timbers of the house. Made out of the timbers of the house. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. Was this something the person had permission to do? or It, it, was, it was part of a, um, a recycling scheme. Um, it was part of a determination that it would not just be the wrecking of a house, but it would be an attempt um, where possible to make good out of the materials um, from the okay. house. So, so that, puts, that puts a nicer spin on it. Yeah, there's there's some good intent behind that aspect of it. Yeah, kind of circling back and talking about the center. Um, where does the funding come from? Well, that's a nice question. Um, the basic answer is it doesn't. Um, it's not particularly a funded center. There is a small amount of, of funding from um, donations, as I understand it. Okay. I have to m make it absolutely clear that I've got nothing at all to do with that side of the center. Okay. Um, so I'm I'm simply repeating what I, I think I've heard. Um, but essentially, the center is appealing for funds continuously. And if you go to the website for the center, there's a donate button. So people are invited to donate. And I understand that there have been some um, people who have um, donated some significant funds in the past to uh, kind of keep things running. There were some donations which, for example, helped pay for um, the journal um, and some of the other publication work that the centre does. Um, okay. one, one of the great ironies um, for me of the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies, it's got this enormous amount of material, which I imagine must be worth millions of dollars. I don't know, to be honest, but I, uh, simply from the sheer quantity of it, it it must be of substantial worth. And yet, there's no way to make use of that value um, in order to run the centre. Do you see what I mean? You you would need mm -hmm. to, to sell some of that material <laughs> if you wanted to right. un, um, uh, release any of that from a financial point right. of view. So there's this big irony that um, the centre has these hugely valuable assets, and yet... Mm -hmm it has to kind of ask for money all the time. Right. So. Yeah. <laughs> Don't want to cannibalize it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely um, put a link up to the website and encourage our listeners to uh, consider donating. That would be great. Yeah. So do we want to move on to talking specifically about Sound of Thunder now, or do we want to talk more about Bradbury and adaptation and that kind of thing? Yeah, let's, let's bring the conversation back to A Sound of Thunder in particular. Uh, Phil, would you like to tell us about the plot? please oh yeah i'd be very happy to um what, what would you say um your listenership is like do do you think your listeners generally have um read the story and seen the film at the time that they listen to your discussions or do you think they go off and watch the film after they've heard you talk we we always assume that they've already already read already watched or at least are somewhat familiar um right. okay. we don't we don't generally avoid spoilers Okay. Yeah, we, we are okay. not spoiler free. Great. <laughs> no, because... we tried that a few times and it's very difficult. <laughs> yeah. Because I think it's impossible to get across um, what A Sound of Thunder is about without a spoiler, quite frankly. Yeah, I agree. Um, right. It, it absolutely hinges on the ending of the story for, for it to be mm -hmm. of 
compelling interest. Although I think the the setup of the story is quite interesting as well. Okay, here's the mm-hmm. setup, um, and I'll, I'll make this as brief as I can. The setup is you have a company uh, which does time travel. It takes people back in time so that they can hunt animals. Any animal, any time is what they say. But the story is actually about people going back and hunting dinosaurs because, of course, if you could, that's what you would, that's what you would do, presumably. So they go back in time. Um, certain safeguards have to be put in place, of course, because you want to avoid time paradoxes, don't you? So mm-hmm. yes. they have these special <laughs> rules. Um, you cannot... Um, when you go back in time, this, this kind of magical path lays out... Uh, across space and you have to walk on the path and stay on the path because if you step off you might accidentally change something which will then alter how time plays out Um, and you can only kill things that they knew were about to die anyway so um, we presume ahead of time somebody's been back they've watched um, Mm -hmm. a t-rex they've watched it die they've figured out exactly when and where it's going to die and I think they splash it with a piece of red paint or something to mark it. Yeah, that's what it said. So when the time travellers go back, they see the dinosaur, they know it's the one they're about to shoot, and when the time comes, they know it's about to die anyway, so they shoot it. So it's actually quite an ethical way of of hunting, I think. You only ever hunt things that are going to die. Unfortunately, somebody steps off the path. We don't know what they do when they step off the path, but it later turns out that the person who stepped off the path stepped on a butterfly. And the butterfly really is the source of a kind of a ripple that cascades through time. Um, The bird that would have eaten the butterfly dies because the butterfly was no longer there. Uh, Whatever it is that would have eaten the bird dies because the bird wasn't there. It's it's like that story of... Do you know this this thing about the, um, the woman that swallowed the fly? Do you know that thing? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it's a bit like that. She swallowed, the, she swallowed the spider to catch the fly and, and this long chain of events. Mm-hmm. So really the story is like that. Because the butterfly mm-hmm. dies, a whole chain of beings will no longer exist into the future. When our time travellers arrive back, um, things have changed in a subtle way and they find that the mm-hmm. bad guys have won the election and they're now living in this totalitarian regime. Um, mm-hmm. So it's all because of a guy who steps off the path and stands on a butterfly. And I think the moral of the story is look after the little things and the big things will take care of themselves. Well done. (laughs) So this is, ironically, um, the way I came to this story was I saw the trailer for the the film Mm. several years before it came out because it, it ended up getting delayed, I believe. Yeah. And... So after I had seen that and I saw that it said based on a short story by by Ray Bradbury, I thought, oh, I've, I read Ray Bradbury a long time ago and sought it out. And I think, ironically, I found it on a website, you know, like on a teaching website mm-hmm. um, and, and read it there. And I thought, OK, this is the greatest short story I've ever read. It's just so perfect. It drops you down into the middle of the into the middle of a world, introduces something interesting and then pulls the rug out at the end. Yeah. Um, I just thought it was brilliant. I completely agree. And I don't know if you know this, but it's one of the most um, reprinted science fiction stories in history. Um, I, I can't remember how many times it's been reprinted, but it's it's many, many times. Um, and the, the a figure I saw was that up until about 1984, it was the most reprinted short story. It may have mm-hmm. been overtaken by something else in the meantime. 
Um, wow. But yeah, it's been reprinted so many times. So for any of our listeners who haven't read the story yet, we've just spoiled it for you. But, yep. uh, <laughs> you know, really, how long is it? 12, 13 pages? Something like that? Yeah, something like that. Very yeah. brief. It's 20 minute read, maybe. Yeah, just right, right in the sweet spot. Yeah. So run down to your library. Put us on pause. We'll wait for you. Uh, read it. And then... Uh, then you can spend a lot of time trying to find the adaptations for it. <laughs> yeah, it's weird because I I remember getting the movie from our library. It's no longer in circulation in our library system. And Phil, you don't know this, but we, we live in Washington County, Oregon, and there's a cooperative between all of our libraries. And so it's dozens of libraries that contribute to it. And mm. to not be able to find it in any of them does not say anything real good about it. Yeah. Well, not only could we not find the movie, but we couldn't find Ray Bradbury Theater either. That's true. And while one of them might is worth watching the other one definitely is not <laughs> yeah <laughs> well I, I i don't think you've actually mentioned that i'm in the uk i mean people may have guessed from my accent that i'm british yes but i'm i'm in the uk at the moment and that's where i live um mm-hmm. the film was never released here um you wow. you never could get it on a on oh, a wow. european dvd i don't believe it might have come out sort of in the last year or so as a, as a very cheap release or something, but uh, when it first came out, it was not released here. The only way to get it was to get the American one. Hmm. That's interesting, because I, I found your website at one point, and I was looking for Ray Bradbury Media, and around 2005, it talked about how you were planning on going to watch it and you would review it, mm. and there was never a review. And after we watched it, I was wondering if maybe the reason that you didn't review it was you had watched it and maybe not cared for it very much. <laughs> it, it, that is part of it. Um, it took me a long time to, to get hold of a copy, um, and then when I did see it, I I was just so uncomfortable with it as a film that... I, mm. I I put off writing the review, and I guess I never got round to going back and doing it. Well, you can put a link to our podcast discussion about it if you'd like, <laughs> with our blessings. This, this will suffice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, any other thoughts, though, from you know James, you want to, what do you think of the story? I thought the story was fantastic, um, but pretty much for the same reasons you described. It was, it was very well written. I, the prose are great actually i like reading all all of his stories i've read so far i've read like a dozen since we picked up this uh anthology series um and i enjoyed watching i guess i enjoyed watching ray bradbury theater not so Mm -hmm. much the movie uh the but the stories are great they're short succinct they're written very well his prose is fantastic Mm -hmm. i really like the story both my kids like the story uh and in fact tim picks something out which i thought was pretty cool because uh now remember, we've already spoiled. So there is a sound of thunder right when they see the dinosaur. Mm-hmm. And he thought that was alluding to what was going to happen to the hunter when he returned back to the future. Oh, interesting. Ah, yeah. That, that's a, that's a, a very astute observation because the story ends with that as well. The, mm-hmm. the last mm-hmm. line of the story is, there was a sound of thunder. So the line mm-hmm. is used twice in the story. The first time is when the dinosaur appears, and the second mm-hmm. time is where, this is the real spoiler here, the second time is when um, Eccles, the cowardly man who stepped on a butterfly, is shot. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's punished for his sin, if you like. Um, so that too is a sound of thunder. So it's the, the, the same metaphor used twice for two different things. Mm-hmm. I was looking to see if there was um, some kind of deeper symbolism from from that phrase, "the sound of thunder," because I think it pulls from Revelation in the Bible um, when the when the, the pale horseman 
death is revealed. It says, it, and there was, as it were, a sound as of thunder, I think, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't know if that was deliberate or, or if it was, you know, the revelation of the dinosaur. I don't know. I, I, I don't know whether it's deliberate. I'm, I'm not a, a biblical scholar at all. And, and mm-hmm. to be honest, that's the first I've heard of that. I'm, I may have come across that um, mm-hmm. somewhere previously and forgotten it, but I think that's terrific. Um, huh. can, you, can you give me the reference for that again? I have it in this King James version. I think it is King James. Yeah. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, "Come and see." Nice. And what, wow. what was the reference yeah. on that? Six one. Right. That's fascinating. Um, in the story, this is this is when the um, dinosaur first appears. Um, the jungle was wide and full of twittering twitterings, rustlings, murmurs and sighs, suddenly it all ceased as if someone had shut a door. Silence. A sound of thunder. So that's the kind of calm before the storm, if you like, when the dinosaur appears. And then at the end of the story, um, he heard Travis shift his rifle, click the safety catch and raise the weapon. There was a sound of thunder. So again, kind of that silence Mm. after he's pulled the safety catch, silence before, blam, the end of the story. Mm -hmm. And what a great ending, too. Oh, yeah. Boom, done. Absolutely. It's also actually ambiguous, too, whether or not he actually shot him. Right. Yeah. In theory, he could have missed, but we'd never know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But that's what's so great. I mean, it it kind of puts you in the position of of Eccles because of the way it's Mm -hmm. written. Uh Um, There is nothing after that sound of thunder for the reader. As the, as would be the right. case for the guy who's just been shot, you know. So it really puts you mm-hmm. in his shoes. Yeah. Do we want to talk about the movie next or Ray Bradbury Theater? Want to go chronological? I want to go up or down. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about Ray Bradbury Theater because it was it was very very faithful. Ooh, I like Ray Bradbury Theater. Okay. Lead off. Oh, okay, so. Uh, and I might need some help here because I didn't prepare this part. <laughs> uh, Ray Bradbury Theater came out in the late 80s. Uh, as an interesting bit of trivia, Larry Wilcox from Chips is one of the producers. You know him as John, Punch's partner. Um, <laughs> and they adapted just a ton of Ray Bradbury short stories. If you've never seen one before, it will remind you of Hitchcock with with the twist. You know, for people that haven't read older stuff, it might remind you a little bit about Stephen King. There's definitely a horror aspect to a lot of it. Uh, James and I watched a couple Friday night with my sons, and uh, they were pretty heavy. Mm -hmm. Uh, We watched uh, The Fruit at the Bottom of the Bowl and uh, The Playground. And The Town Where Nobody Gets Off. And The Town Where Nobody Gets Off. Mm. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, not a single bit of science fiction in either one of those three. (laughs) Maybe a little bit in the playground, maybe, when they do the body swap. Yes, I suppose so. Uh, I don't know, more of a fantasy thing, I think. It's more of a sort of a psychological horror uh, fantasy thing. (laughs) But those are pretty good episodes, I have to say. People should be warned that there are some terrible episodes in there as well. Um, (laughs) Partly because the the show was made on, on... a real shoestring budget and mm-hmm. it it, oh, okay. it sort of traveled around the world looking for somewhere to settle the the first shows were made in canada 
and then they made some in England and some in France, some in New Zealand, back in Canada wow. again. Um, oh, wow. So it was an international co-production, really, because they were kind of desperate for someone to fund these things. Um, <laughs> and, and some of them were, were really good. I think the British ones were pretty good. Um, it found its stride towards the end of the series, um, and the worst episodes were the ones made in France, which are quite, they're, un, they're unwatchable, Imagine quite honestly. <laughs> yeah, the guy from the UK blames the French for the worst ones. I see. <laughs> so I know uh, A Sound of Thunder was season three, episode six. So 1989. Yes. Good. And it is very 1989 sounding. I don't know if you noticed, um, J- James James was remarking when we watched it, because I think you had, had to go home before before we got to watch it. Yes. Um, and just, just all the uh, all the computers made the little beep, boop, yeah. beep, 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 beep. That was fantastic. <laughs> Definitely talking about the, the shoestring budget um, there, you can you can kind of tell in, in the episode that the dinosaur effects are not what you would call top-notch, not exactly up to Jurassic Park. Yeah. Oh, but predating Jurassic Park by four to five years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm not, I'm not not dinging it for not having uh, good computer effects before they were really pioneered. Um, and, you know, it's a step up from The Land of the Lost or, or um, you know, <laughs> old old um, back rear projection dinosaur movies and stuff. There, there are a lot of classic kind of dinosaur movies with stop motion mm-hmm. um, that I loved when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. I remember all those. <laughs> yeah. So, as you said, it's... It's a quite faithful adaptation, um, which you, you you know my opinion on this is kind of why bother. Um, uh, we have the we have the story. I'm not sure we needed to see it, um, but on the other hand, it it, it was kind of fun. Yes, uh, I I really like in the adaptation how they actually kind of accentuated the sound of thunder at the end of this of the mm-hmm. episode. Yeah, so you're actually in Eccles point of view as the gun is being pointed at you and then you hear the sound and then it just cuts and it goes yeah. right to black. Yeah. yeah. One thing I thought was interesting in watching the the episode was it it takes the short story and adapts it to about a 23-minute episode, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. But it still felt like there was space in it. It wasn't rushed in any way, which really makes you wonder why did anyone ever try to make a feature-length film <laughs> from this material? Right. Because if you can make 23 minutes and not have it feel rushed, that, you know, that's, that's an issue if you're going to try and expand it. Yeah. I have a question. Mm -hmm. Um, Did Ray Bradbury write the uh, script for, he wrote the script for all of his stuff in the Bradbury Theater? Absolutely. Every single one. That would explain why this is such a fantastic adaptation. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I don't think in any other uh, story we've done, we've had the author of the book do this screenwriting. No, it's it's very rare, particularly in feature films. Yeah. Um, Stephen King does it occasionally, but for the most part, um, the original author is kept away. Filmmakers don't like um, novelists and so on <laughs> having any say at all. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, but Bradbury has always been a screenwriter, from, well, from the nineteen fifties onwards, um, and this was his show. He was uh, an executive producer yeah. on this, so I think that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this particular one, as you say, is very faithful. It it is pretty much a transcription of the of the story. Um, some of the others were changed substantially. If you if you watch an episode called The Pedestrian, for example, um, that's quite different to the original short story. Um, so sometimes he felt that the original needed to be changed for dramatic purposes. But for this one, he clearly believed that the story was 
kind of perfectly formed, really. So the screenplay just matches what was in the story. So Colin and I ha- have a history of arguing about um, <laughs> about whether things should be faithfully adapted or not. Mm. And mm. to me, what, what Phil just said was that even the author sometimes agrees that changes need to be made. Oh, definitely. Yeah. But not, but not yeah. always. So if, if I had one criticism of the episode, other than, you know, the, the effects, of course, are, are kind of hilarious, but, mm. um, <laughs> but charming, but charming in the way. That's, that's the thing um, where the movie, the effects are just hilarious. Um, the, the part where Eccles is kind of freaking out and getting cold feet that that dialogue is taken right out of the story. And in mm-hmm. the story, I was convinced by that dialogue, but I don't know if it was the execution by the actor or just somehow the dialogue from whenever the sh- story was written to when it was filmed didn't sound like a modern guy to me somehow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but I might be just you know, nitpicking. And, and as I said, I did enjoy it. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I, I think it was one of the better episodes. The um, That kind of cowardly character, I think, is perhaps the type of character that works um, in a short story. But I think when we're watching things on a, on a screen, we kind of expect to see heroes, heroic figures. And it just seems mm. a bit odd to have somebody right at the centre of the story who is an abject coward, but but not a comedy character. I think if it was... Hmm. I'm not saying do this as a comedy by any means, but if, right. it, if it were a comedy, <laughs> then, you know, you, we, we do have comic cowards, but we're not yes. used to having cowards in the centre of a drama. Now, obviously, he's not... Well, he is and he isn't the main character. You could say that Travis, the, the kind of organiser of the hunt, is right. the, he's the hero, if you like. Right. But the story isn't really about him. The story really is about this Eccles who does this silly thing and then pays the consequence um, for mm. what he's done. So it, it's kind of a, a bit of a misfit um, in, in terms of what we normally expect from a dramatic story. So I think that's where that where the problem is with that. But I think the performance, actually, is pretty good. Um, Kyle Martin, I think, is the guy's name. He used to be in Hill Street Blues. Um, and I thought he was pretty good. Oh. Yeah, I definitely did recognize him from something. I just mm. couldn't place him. Yeah. Mm. Um, I wanted to note that I had looked up in our library system looking for A Sound of Thunder, and I found I, a collection of short stories just called Dinosaur! Exclamation mark. And right. it had uh, The Foghorn from Ray Bradbury, which is terrific, and is a, is a was adapted into uh, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which we're totally going to have to cover. Okay. Because, um, it, yeah, it's really good. It's kind of sad. I don't, I don't know, um, Phil, if you're familiar with oh, The Foghorn. Yes. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I, I'd be curious what they did in the film. Um, I doubt they kept the same tone, but I'm, I'd like to see it. <laughs> they they used about ten seconds of the story. That's kind of what I figured. The, the central premise, and that's it. So, yeah. but um, I, there was also a short story in there called "A Gun for Dinosaur," and yes. it was from L. Sprague de Camp. That's right. Yeah. Um, I might be butchering that name, but it no, was no, interesting no. because it's almost the counterpoint to A Sound of Thunder, where yeah. the idea is you go into the past to hunt dinosaurs, but it's so far back in the past that any changes you made won't be significant in, in the thrust of, of deep time. Yeah. Hmm. So it's, it's exactly the opposite premise. Yeah. So you can do anything you want. Mm-hmm. Well, not anything, but, but anything that you would do would be so minor that it wouldn't, wouldn't factor. Hmm. Um, but but also the kind of the, the universe conspires against you if you try to create a paradox, it kind of right. obliterates you. I think that's the the moral of that story, if you like. 
But it, yeah, it's fascinating that those two stories came out round about the same time. I think they were about three years apart. Um, and I've always wondered whether um, Elsbreg de Camp was writing that in response to the Bradbury story. I've, I've never seen anything yeah, one way or the other, but I'd, I'd love to know myself. So final thoughts on the episode? Uh, a, a brief note for me. Mm-hmm. I, I remember watching the episode. I watched it in my dorm room in college. Oh, wow. I would have sworn, and, and maybe I'm, I'm mixing stuff up in my head, I would have sworn that when they came back that behind the desk there was a, a Nazi flag with a swastika on it and that all the guys were wearing armbands with swastikas. Huh. They definitely had armbands. There's yes. armbands. Definitely armbands, yeah. But yeah. But no Nazi kind of... Uh, associations at all so hmm. maybe i don't remember right. things as well as i think i do sometimes <laughs> and if my wife is listening to this yes you can play this back to me <laughs> so i one thing one thing that i noticed and i, f- I forgot um i always notice the green grocer's apostrophe um which is the the apostrophe for plural right. and there there was one in this episode it's a time safari apostrophe s mm-hmm. so yes. yeah and that's not that's not in the bradbury story no, it is not. I, I checked. <laughs> Bradbury wouldn't get something like that wrong. No. Okay, so shall we move on to the film? Yes. So, if, if I must. recall, if I recall correctly, I saw the trailer in the theater as a, as a trailer for a for a, a different film, um, but I was not aware of the film ever actually coming out in theaters. And based on the box office numbers, it didn't come out in many. Um, but it was famously plagued by, I think, the production company went bankrupt. I don't know, Phil, if you have yeah. insider information on, on this. Yeah, I, it, you're right. There was, um, I think there were several companies attached to it. But yeah, one of the big funders um, yeah, went bust. But it, I believe it was after the shooting had been completed, um, mm-hmm. but before the post-production work had begun. So it was really the, um, the post-work that suffered uh, in this. Um, and and those are probably the most embarrassing parts of the film are the the, the very poor special effects. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Although there, there's some embarrassment to spread around to other oh, areas yeah, as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one one thing that I will you know just in in defense of the movie in one tiny little bit is um, we were talking about the the cowardly character in in the story mm-hmm. and that is replaced in the film by something that I thought was interesting and in the mechanical failure of of. Travis's gun. That that was what yeah. caused everyone to to flee, to run away. That was the inciting incident for him stepping off the path, for Echo stepping off the path. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I liked that better than than. Well, I won't say I liked it better than the story, but I liked it in the film. I thought it was a decent addition. You think it played better? Yeah. yeah. Mm. I I think there's there's it it sort of helps um, the sense of there being a mystery to be solved and there being a chain of mm. events um, to to unpick. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. Uh, and yeah. given and given that they'd chosen at some point to um, move the the discovery of the butterfly um, in in the short story, it's the culmination of the story. And in a feature-length right. film, okay, you could have had that as the culmination of the story, but they've chosen to use it earlier on, which I, I think is fine. But if that is the case, the, the butterfly is no longer the total solution to the problem. So, yeah, the plot needs a bit more complication. So, yeah, I'm, I'm quite happy mm-hmm. with those those complications that they've put in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so 
this is one of those things where you take such a brief story. You have mm-hmm. to, your movie can work. I mean, we've, we've seen um, eight o'clock in the morning it turned into they live right. Much expanded story mm-hmm. that ended up being a pretty cool movie, but it doesn't always work. It depends on the quality of what, what you do. And then of course, with this one, with the unforgivable special effects, it, right. you're, you're more unlikely, I think to cut the movie a break for its short fallings or shortcomings in other areas because mm-hmm. of the effects. Mm. Though I will say that I'm not sure I have enjoyed watching a movie with you guys more than that one, because I, I laughed out loud so many times at the, at the hilarious effects. Um, and, and the just, just unforgivable science uh, that they did, using the Heisenberg un- uncertainty wow. principle to prove that anything that can happen will happen. I, I believe that's Murphy's Law. Right. <laughs> yeah, that was all. All food bar. <laughs> well, and then blaming the butterfly on the biofilter. Right, yeah, which wouldn't that was have stopped another. the death of the butterfly and the uh, the inciting cause of all the time changes. It right. just would have told you, oh, hey, something happened. Mm. Right. right, and and we also discussed if the biofilter was active and it kept the butterfly from coming back, then they wouldn't have had any evidence of what actually happened, yes. and the whole movie would right. have fallen apart anyway. <laughs> so right, <laughs> yeah. Um, hmm. <laughs> I'm not even sure what to. That was I mean, kind of a I, huge hole. <laughs> I guess we could talk about what they did to expand it. Um, they showed a successful safari. They showed the whole shtick that the, the Ben Kingsley and his, his hilarious wig um, <laughs> doing for, for the party. And, and then Travis giving his little spiel about, I'm pretty sure it was your bullet that brought it down. You know, There's a lot of it in there that I, I actually really kind of liked. But yeah. as I said, it, in the totality of the picture, I, I, I can't give it a thumbs up in any way. Um, but so they, they show... Time Safari, you know, the, the corporation. They introduce uh, corporate corruption because there's government oversight of their technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's why the biofilter was turned off because it was too expensive and he got the government guy to uh, ignore that, I guess. Um, but the, the, the main thing that they introduce is the idea that the changes to time ripple outward like ripples on a pond. And it's dumb, <laughs> but... Uh, you know, it's it, you have to get the audience to buy in, and at some point, I kind of went, okay, I don't, I don't buy that the rationale for this is that humans evolved last somehow, which isn't true. Oh, but um, that's that's the bit where I I I really hated the film at that point because that line yeah. is just so dumb, coming especially yeah. coming from somebody who's supposed to be a, a, some kind of scientific expert. <laughs> it's yes. just nonsense. <laughs> Yeah, if if they would have said something like um, the changes will ripple forward into more and more complex organisms, that yeah. would have worked. Yeah. Um, and you'd think somebody would have noted that <laughs> in the screenwriting process. Well, Phil, do you know if Mr. Bradbury was much involved in the screenwriting process, or it, did he have no. an opinion about the film? Well, um, he wasn't involved. Um, he was kept. He was informed. Let's put it that way. The, the production company kept him informed. I've seen some of the letters um, that they sent him, and they sent him tapes as well. I've actually seen some of the um, out, outtakes that they sent him on VHS tape just to keep him informed of what was going on on the production. So he was kept informed. But generally speaking, um, once he'd sold the rights to somebody to, to make a film, he believed in letting them do it. Um, he, he didn't feel that it was his um, position to uh, sort of interfere. It was different if he was writing the script. If he'd written the script, he would be quite protective of the script and 
quite opinionated. But if he just sold the story so that somebody else could make it, he would kind of politely keep his distance and usually not pass any comment. The, the only exception to that that I know of was when they did a TV miniseries of The Martian Chronicles. Um, and he publicly mm. said that it was boring. And he got told off by NBC TV for um, saying nasty things about their really expensive <laughs> TV show. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> but um, I, I haven't seen any comments that he made at all on A Sound of Thunder. I think generally he said that he was he was OK with it. But um, I don't know. I don't think he was that bothered by it, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, something I think about because with all of the adaptations happening now, it's one of the more frequent questions I see asked to authors. Mm. Uh, it was asked to Terry Brooks, it's asked to John Scalzi, it's asked to George R. R. Martin, yeah. um, and their level of involvement changes based on author to author and project to project. But yeah. everyone seems to be interested. You know, how much are they going to change? What are they going to change? Yeah, uh, am a reader as a reader and a fan, am I going to care about those changes? Yeah, I, I think I think one of the issues though is that um, the number of people who have read a book is is going to be small compared to the number of people they think will go and see the film. So even something like Harry Potter, um, okay, the books were enormously popular, but far more people saw the films than ever read the books. So if you're a film producer, you don't necessarily feel the need to um, do good things for the readers of the books. They're they're not your primary audience. So I can understand them um, wanting to change things, but I, I, I also find it very odd when people change things just for the sake of it. And there is um, supposedly uh, in the making of A Sound of Thunder, um, an earlier director who was attached to the film was sacked because he wanted to get rid of the butterfly. And it was Ray that, in, <laughs> that was the, the one thing Ray insisted on. If you're going to do this story, you must have the butterfly. That's the whole mm-hmm. point of the story. Right. So he insisted on that. And he, according to him, he got the director fired. Um, so <laughs> it wow. could have been a lot worse. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, that's that's insane. Uh, yeah. One thing I will say is I do like the movie poster. There's there's a version of the poster that shows the butterfly. It, it kind of looks like a horror movie poster, really. Yeah. Um, it does. But we we often talk about the the quality of movie posters, and it reminded me of Signs of the Lambs a little bit. Yeah, mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What what I like about the poster the the poster features the butterfly very prominently, right. but it doesn't feature mm-hmm. dinosaurs. Um, so I, I think it it it's quite a poetic poster it's not a literal poster um if it was literal it would be full of dinosaurs um right but also the other thing that i find very strange about the film that they kept the title of the story i'm i'm pleased that they did but i'm sure a lot of people would have sat through that film and thought why is it called a sound of thunder right because they they don't exploit that idea anywhere in the film and it would have been so much easier for them you would think to just change the title to something else dino hunt right. or something time time safaris yeah yeah and so i'm very pleased time that they kept the title. Cool title yeah yeah a sound of blunder <laughs> <laughs> um so wh- one thing with the film is that I, I was kind of trying to think of i feel like there are in the short story i won't call them flaws but things that could be nitpicked you know that, that the mm-hmm. premise I'm not totally sure it holds up the idea that there is a possible minimal intervention or zero intervention. Mm. Because if you traveled into the past and you fired high-powered weapons at dinosaurs, the concussion of that 
sound, it would have to send something scurrying off, which would change its outcome. You know, um, just waves in the air. The, the whole kind of the the idea of the butterfly effect, right? Just ripples in the air. That's all it would take. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm in a short story. I'm I'm willing to kind of overlook that kind of thing. It's not the, it's yeah. not the sort of thing that invites nitpicking. But I think a film, a full production film, you have to get everything right. And you want to minimize the number of things that people can say, yeah, but th- that didn't work at all. Yeah. Right. I think with the short story, it would work because there's no, there's no setup, right? Right. You just kind of dropped us into the story and then took us right out again. As opposed <laughs> to a longer novel or a film, you have that chance to do the setup, you better do it or you failed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what you're talking about there is something that um, goes back further than Bradbury. H.G. Wells um, used to write short stories. We, we know H.G. Wells now for things like The Time Machine and War of the Worlds. But he was a prolific short story writer as well. And he, he used to describe his short stories as single sittings, stories of science. And he, he used to say something like um, he would base the story on something that was clearly impossible. Mm-hmm. But he would make it sound possible and allow you to believe it for the duration of the story. And mm-hmm. so in order to do that, he would yeah. have to keep the story short. And mm-hmm. Bradbury's right. doing exactly the same thing in A Sound of Thunder. He's keeping the s- story short. He's selling you something mm-hmm. that is frankly impossible, but he convinces you <laughs> for the duration of the story. And then when you close the book, you say, hey, wait a minute, that can't work. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right, yeah. in a film... The the viewer is questioning everything because because mm-hmm. the viewer has no control over the pace of information. You you're kind of questioning everything that's coming towards you, and you're saying, "Yep, that makes sense. Yep, that makes sense." Oh, oh wait a minute, I need to think about this. And the minute mm-hmm. something throws you out of the story in that way, then potentially you're lost as a viewer um, because mm-hmm. other things are still unfolding on the screen while you're trying to figure out that that nonsensical thing that just happened. And so a film doesn't have quite as much um, opportunity to get one over on you, I don't think. And the longer the film is, the harder it is to sustain mm. those kind of illogical gaps. All right. Well, I'm glad I wasn't crazy in thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that the film did do, maybe on its, on its positive side, was uh, it didn't fire real bullets. They fired frozen nitrogen, nitrogen I think, yeah. and the sound right. that they made was not the sound of a gun it was a mm-hmm. yeah right. you know, that's so true. it was quite a bit quieter they the had on discharge s- of gas right yeah, yeah they had on insulating suits and private air supplies mm-hmm. um to try and be as non-intrusive as possible mm. mm-hmm. yeah but then there's the the whole thing of you know butterflies are are flying creatures and they can fly over the top of a <laughs> of of the hovering path just as well as anything so you could step on one there um and and so that's another thing another kind of thing where as you're watching the movie you're seeing this or in the short story you're maybe not picturing it quite to that extent yeah. and so the short story it didn't bother me right. but then when i watched the movie i'm like wait, wait he left a footprint which means clearly that your steps are physical yeah, and I, th- um, I think they actually show the butterfly going over the path as well, don't they? They do. Yeah. So they're, they're kind of in, they're in, they're inviting you to see the the logical flaw. But as you say, Bradbury just doesn't mention that. So you, well, and didn't Eccles try and blow you. away the butterfly in the movie? Yeah. Oh yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yes. and then they push his gun down. Yeah, and and well, they have that silly thing about uh, nobody can fire until Travis fires, and then when they actually start firing, his isn't the first gun to go off. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> Not even internally consistent. So, I quite like the um, I quite like the the fact that they go back 
in time again to try and figure out what happened. I think that's a, a, a useful expansion of the story, and it's quite neat when you see them watching themselves um, doing doing that. Yeah, there there were a few effects in the movie that I thought were were halfway decent, and one of them was the uh, kind of the the air markers when the, they were projecting drawings in the in the in midair, like in holography. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which, which I thought was kind of neat, and 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 yeah, when they were watching themselves, that was kind of kind of cool. It was like they were looking into a, a diorama or something. Mm. But what did you so, think of those those dialogue scenes where Ed Burns is walking along a street talking to somebody, <laughs> and there are these very crudely animated cars going behind going on behind them? What did you think of that? It, it was completely distracting to the actual dialogue. <laughs> Not that the dialogue was great to start with. No, no, no but yeah, yeah, that was bad. I, I did like some of the. I mean, I, the the altered evolution stuff was really dumb, um, but I still did sort of like the lizard monkey things, even though it makes no sense whatsoever. The lizard monkeys—they were kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Baboon, baboonosaurs. Well, so what? What was hilarious is um, as we were watching it, Colin's kids were with us and yeah. he has, how old is peter 16 16 um so he was sitting there and he went well let's see we've had bugs and we've had land mammals and something flying so i guess next we're gonna have to have a sea creature and on cue was when we got that weird <laughs> sea serpent thing um so that was awesome that was pretty good <laughs> it's kind of a measure of how predictable the movie's being and yet it did sort of introduce that concept of a progression of of species being altered even though it's yeah Dumb as a bag of hammers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? Oh, so I'll pull out some trivia here. Okay. The uh, the movie has the distinction of being the worst rated movie we have done yet. It is six percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. wow. And what that was much. Uh, <laughs> what was Rollerball? Rollerball was nine, eight or nine. Yeah. The, the Rollerball remake. Just the to remake. Be clear. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I have to say though, if I had to rewatch one of those movies, I would absolutely watch The Sound of Thunder again. I would say the Sound of Thunder is a way better rollerball. Yeah, <laughs> I, I haven't the seen remake. the remake. The remake. I seen it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, don't. <laughs> it's not worth. It's not worth the time. <laughs> no, it's not. It's terrible. Every every time I've watched the Sound of Thunder, um, I, I've started off thinking, you know, this this isn't so bad. But always there comes a point where I think, my God, this is terrible. And it's, yeah. it's usually that line about evolution. Um, but also, there, there's some bits in it which I, just made no sense to me on the first couple of viewings. The, the whole business with the lion. Um, we, yes. We need to... Lions are extinct. So in order to study lions, we have to go back in time and study dinosaurs. Why not just go back in time 10 years and study the mm. last lion that was alive? You right. know, there's a whole that whole thing made no sense whatsoever to me, and it, uh, I I think I took about three viewings of the film to be able to make any sense out of that. And there's mm. also, um, do you remember right at the beginning of the film they have that kind of champagne party for the first group of hunters who've come back, and there's a woman mm. there who I think is the daughter of one of the hunters, and then a few minutes right. later she turns up in Ed Burns' apartment and she says, right. um, "The concierge let me in," and you think. Well, you didn't even speak to this man. You were in the same room with him earlier on. You didn't speak to him. You didn't look at him. Why are you suddenly in his apartment? And mm. then you never see her again. And I've no idea what yeah. that's about. I got the impression that he was kind of a rock star scientist. But 
<laughs> Since he had no charisma, I'm not sure where that would come from. And he's yeah. not exactly Brian Cox, so. <laughs> but it's really yeah, weird. It, that was odd. Yeah. So my problem with the whole lion thing was the the idea that all mammals or all all animals are extinct was kind of an interesting concept to me. And the idea that he would be going back to kind of collect DNA to, to do that. I got the impression that the movie did not deliver on that he was making different trips and that essentially working for mm. the Ben Kingsley character allowed him to do that. But mm. the problem is that was kind of a, a hint of a more interesting film that we didn't see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's always a problem when, yeah. when like, Oh, that's an interesting thing. Let's follow up on that. And then we never follow up on it at all. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, it, that film it, was Star Trek Four, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, true. Actually, I I also had to question uh, at what grocery store or or um, or other facility do you find carbonated blood in wine bottles? Oh yes. <laughs> she, remember, she comes in and sprays them with the with the wine bottle, like she's like she's shooting champagne at them. Mm. So there has to be carbonation in there somewhere. Oh, good point. So yeah. It just fails on so many levels. <laughs> I, I also thought it was interesting that, um, was it Tammy? Was that the name of the computer interface? Yeah. Yeah, it sounds right. Um, was no kind of specialized hardware at all, just a hard drive, just a program running on a hard drive. And that is all they need oh, to time yeah. travel. Yeah. A- and a, uh, an accelerator. Okay, so maybe maybe I'll credit them that at least there was one piece of tech on the other end that they had to have. Of, of course, you know, introducing all this new vegetation into the city, and the st- city looks like it's absolutely crumbling, and yet they have enough power to run that accelerator to send them back one more time. Mm-hmm. The most hilarious effect to me in the entire movie, and it's saying something, is when they do the thing where they send him to one, I think they, they try to send him back and he ends up in the Old West, Oh yeah, <laughs> and 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 all the all the Native Americans come r- rushing mm-hmm. through on horses, and he just dives to the ground, and that is enough <laughs> to keep him from being trampled. Um, I just, yeah, I'm sure that I'm sure he had no idea what was actually happening. And there, I actually found an interview with Ed Burns, and so some someone was asking him, and maybe I'll I'll post a link to the interview. This is your first foray into full bore action slash adventure film, complete with glorious FX. So what's the word on a Sound of Thunder? And it seems like this will be your big action picture magnum opus. And Burton says, I hope so. It's really a strange experience, quite honestly. I've never done straight action before, and it's science fiction. And it's all special effects. I have no idea even what the film looks like. I spent four months in Prague in these blue rooms reacting to nothing. And you basically place your faith in the hands of the director and the special effects coordinator. And you keep your fingers crossed and hope that the creatures look really scary. (laughs) So this was, if there was ever... Wow. Faith placed in the wrong thing. That was it. Yeah. yeah. But it, but of course, no the, the, the company goes bust. There's no money mm. to do the special effects, and they're done as cheaply as possible just to try and recoup some money that's been spent on the film up to that point. So uh, yeah. I, I kind of feel sorry for the actors um, on this because yeah. it, it could, it could have, it would still have been a very illogical film, but with mm-hmm. some decent effects, it might have been. Um, at least something that would pass the time and wouldn't have been so embarrassing to watch. But yeah. at the moment, everything about it just doesn't work, pretty much. Well, I thought it was really, really strange that we saw the first Safari go back, the successful one, mm-hmm. and then the next time we saw with Eccles and whatever his buddy's name was, yeah. they went back and saw the same Allosaurus. And there was nothing right. 
nothing that indicated that they were all aware that this is the same dinosaur. And it's not a paradox because of reasons. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> reasons that they would have provided. Uh, well, no, I think I think they were they were familiar with it because he knew he, every move of the dinosaur. Now the dinosaur is oh, yeah. going to turn right. Now the dinosaur is going to you know go right. left. Yeah. So I think I think the film in, indicates that it's the same dinosaur, but they yeah. never do. They never hand wave it away that this works somehow, even though a previous safari should have been killing it at that moment. Um, where oh, I see uh, what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. The, it, yeah. In, in, there comes the paradox, right? Right. And in the short story, they actually talk about this. It says, it says, you felt that bump on the way out. That was us passing the other group, or that was passing ourselves coming back. Um, right. And, of course, when the person was there scouting it and putting a red paint on it, which incidentally would probably also scare the dinosaur off and change its path, um, right. he would have seen the safari come back as well, right? If the timeline is consistent. But yeah. this, the story is... does a good job of kind of waving that aside. And this that's is... fine. But in the movie, it doesn't work. This is where it doesn't do to analyze things too closely. Any any time yes. travel story <laughs> will get you into these knots because, of course, in yes. real life, they're impossible. And until we discover otherwise, they are impossible. So, of course, there are going to be contradictions. But you're right. It's kind of a hand-waving thing to get rid of it. Did you know that Ray originally sent this story to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, which was a, uh, a big science fiction magazine back in the day, still is, still going, um, mm -hmm. And the editors rejected it. They said, "We great story, but we don't believe a word really? of it." <laughs> oh. <laughs> so they they did not buy that killing a butterfly would have a a modest change in human history. They thought that it would change everything. Um, mm -hmm. So, but Ray laughed all the way to the bank because he sold the story to a magazine that I believe paid much more, which was Collier's, which was a mainstream. Uh, magazine, not a, not a science fiction magazine, but a mainstream sort of family magazine. That's where um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers was originally published as well. In Collier's. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yeah, wow. It's possible, yeah. Well, and the very term about the butterfly, butterfly effect, it actually came out 10 years after he wrote the story. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. This idea that a, a butterfly flaps its wings in Japan and we get a thunderstorm in the United States. Yep. yep. So th there is, um, there are people who say most definitely that this story is where that came from. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not so sure. Um, the guy who in, who officially coined the term the butterfly effect was uh, called Lorenz, I think. Um, I don't think he ever made any reference to the Bradbury story. Um, so I, my feeling is that it's um, two two similar concepts have been kind of joined together. Uh, I don't think right. necessarily that the story influenced that idea, but um, it, it's a very nice coincidence if if it is just a coincidence. Right. Mm -hmm. Awfully large coincidence. Um, and 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 it, and it's the, the the basis of Jurassic Park, isn't it? Really, the whole chaos theory thing, which is what this butterfly flapping its wings um, leads to. Mm -hmm. the, you know, the whole the chaos theory is what underpins Jurassic Park. So it's kind of a nice full circle there, bringing us back to dinosaurs. True. I will say um, there is, on TV tropes, there is a trope called Butterfly of Doom, and uh, A Sound of Thunder is the trope namer for that. So. Wow. <laughs> <Classic. Yeah. laughs> they also did it on The Simpsons, of course. They um, Yes. I think uh, Was it a toaster that um, Homer Simpson uh -huh. uses yep. to travel back in time? Yeah, I think he jammed a screwdriver into it and that's right. back in time. <laughs> well, he, he had uh, gotten the, the toaster stuck on his hand and just 
beat it all to pieces and then had to go out and fix it. And they show you a picture of when he's done. It's got circuitry and vacuum tubes and all this. He has to make an extra case that fits around it all. He closes it and gives it a test toast, and it takes him back in time. Mm -hmm. Right. I like when he eventually just decides, screw it, and starts just wailing on anything in sight. (laughs) I haven't seen that one in years, but... but, uh... I actually did recognize it. I, I, I saw it after I had <laughs> read A Sound of Thunder. So, Well, you may have a chance to see it again, because if we ever do The Shining by Stephen King, it's in the same uh, Halloween of Horror episode. Is that uh, yeah. Treehouse of Horror? Yeah. Treehouse yes. of Horror. Yeah. There was, what was the other one that was in there that I recognized? Oh, Soylent Green, perhaps. Yes, that was mm. the one. So, which people. is still on our list and we haven't done. <laughs> so. But oh, that's, that's a little that's a little more more reading intensive than a sound of thunder yeah it's an that, that's book. that's another classic case of where the film changes something drastically from the book and i think um harry harrison the, the author of the book was not happy at all uh, with the change mm. something we haven't mentioned yet is the director of the film um peter hyams um right who made other science fiction films some of which are okay um he directed outland which is high noon in space um which I, th- I think two-thirds of it is a reasonable film, and the, the last third, I think, is is nonsense. I mean, that's my personal view. Um, mm. He made Time Cop, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme time travel film, yes. um, which is okay. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> that, that one is, is good for what it is. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. He did 2010, he, the sequel. He did Capricorn 1 as well, did he not? Yes, he did. Yes. Because that, that makes it into this screenplay because when ben kingsley is doing his you joined you know armstrong on the moon or or whatever he says um yes. yeah and brew baker on mars brew baker on mars yeah. yeah and that's what that's an easter egg to one of the director's previous films that's right yeah it's um because of peter hyams that we have um moon landing conspiracy theorists today if mm-hmm. it hadn't been for capricorn one i i don't think anyone would ever have doubted that people had been to the moon but because he may in that film he suggests that you can just make it up on a soundstage, that's what mm-hmm. a lot of people think happened. <laughs> so it's kind of the China syndrome of science fiction. Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, at this point, we normally um, rank the story and any adaptations. But you know, before we sign off uh, from Ray Bradbury in general, uh, Phil, do you know if there's any upcoming adaptations that we should be on the lookout for? Uh, of Bradbury stories, um, there yeah. is in in the works. There supposedly is a new film version of Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is a, a fantasy mm. um, story. I don't know whether that would fit within your your remit here. Um, oh, we could make it. Good, good. Um, and and always um, Fahrenheit four five one. The the film rights are out there. Um, but there's no sign of the film being made at the moment. And similarly, The Illustrated Man um, supposedly is is hmm. stuck in development hell. Which, so all, there, there is an older adaptation of The Illustrated Man, there is, from what I there recall. Is. But it only yeah. um, adapts a little bit of it. Yeah. It does. Th- three or four stories from the book. Yeah. yeah. Mm. But I think that would be a good one for you, for you to do on, on the show. Um, yeah, and definitely. I think you should do Fahrenheit 451 as well. That's one that I... I had been wanting to read, and I found an audio version of it, and it was such a bad um, performance of it that it really took me out of the story. Mm. Um, so audiobook giveth and audiobook taketh away. Yeah. 
it, it's kind of down down to the narrator to to bring you into it. Mm-hmm. So that's one I definitely want to give another look. Right. Mm. And it's one of the main reasons I don't count audiobooks as reading. <laughs> because i don't feel that i've given that the appreciation it deserves yeah i don't have an illustrated man in our uh in our database i need to add that okay you have the velt in there don't you i do kind of the first story in the illustrated man yeah i saw i saw that you had that listed um as one of the things that you were looking at um covering in the future but i think you 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 could do the velt story and um, the Ray Bradbury theatre episode and the Illustrated Man film. I think those would um, mm-hmm. repay uh, close inspection, I think. Yeah. Well, if if nothing else, um, doing this podcast has, has made me want to read more Bradbury. Good. Definitely. Um, because I had read kind of the one anthology and, and the Martian Chronicles. <laughs> um, although, actually, no, that was audio as well, but it was a good performance and really, really enjoyable. So it's one that I want to circle back and read in print as well. Mm. Good. Well, if ever you want me to come back on and talk about any of these, I'd, I'd be very happy to, to do it. I, I know all of these I know all of these things inside out, so I, I don't even need to reread them necessarily, although I probably would. <laughs> nice. And we'll, we'll try not to catch you so late at night next time, too. <laughs> yeah, we can rearrange our schedule a bit. Great. Do you have a, a favorite adaptation, Phil? Something that we should maybe like prioritize in our Ray Bradbury watching and viewing and reading? Um, the very best adaptation um, for me is a short story called The Burning Man, um, which was done on the 1980s Twilight Zone series. It's, it's very short. It's nice. only about 12 minutes. Um, but it was beautifully done. Um, and the story is really nice as well. It's, it's really it's a horror story or a fantasy story. Um, but it's very short, so if you wanted to track that down, that, that would be worth looking at, I think. Um, we, earlier on this year, we had um, a Bradbury film screening in Indiana. I, I flew out to, in, which is where the um, Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies is. Um, mm-hmm. I flew out and John Eller and I had um, programmed a film series over the course of a week. And we showed some some full-length films, but we also showed some short pieces. And we showed The Burning Man, and it got quite a good response from the audience. Most people hadn't seen it, because it's like 30 years old, and it was only a few minutes long, so it was very easily missed. Um, But it got quite a good response um, from the audience. So I recommend that one if you can track it down. Yeah, we'll look for it. I think uh, Twilight Zone... Oh, no, I'm not sure if... I know on Netflix there's quite a bit of The Twilight Zone, but I don't know if Mm. it has it into the 80s. Right. That was kind of the revival of it, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's where I remember seeing the Velt from. Okay. It was from the 80s revival. Hmm. Well, shall we do some rankings? Yes, sure. Okay. Uh, this is purely subjective. It's, you know, of the three things we've talked about, the short story, the uh, Ray Bradbury theater episode, and the 2005 movie, which one you liked best to least? Okay. Um, I think the story is hands down the winner. Um, it, it is near perfect. Uh, the only thing that's flawed about it, as you were saying, is the kind of the time travel paradox thing doesn't stand up to close scrutiny, but it does it as well as you can possibly do it, I think. So I think mm-hmm. the story is pretty much a near perfect piece of fiction. Then the Ray Bradbury Theatre episode, and not just because it is faithful to the story. That that To me, that's interesting, but that's not a thing that makes it a good piece of television or a bad piece of television it's simply that it's um 
it's well written and it's quite well realized given the the tiny budget that they had um so yeah i quite like that and the film to be honest i wouldn't even put it in third place <laughs> we need like a 10th place or a 15th place <laughs> no word <laughs> my own heart <laughs> james well uh i think i'll have to agree with phil on this one um the story was great and i like again back to what we were saying about short stories other it was short enough to suck you in make you believe is going on for real and then pop you back out mm-hmm. um the the film just ruined that <laughs> so the story and then the uh the ray bradbury theater adaptation i thought was great i thought it was good to see something um adapted by the author of the story of the mm-hmm. short story and then he's he wrote the screen for it so mm-hmm. that was cool yeah i'm not even going to mention the movie <laughs> was there a movie <laughs> what movie? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to concur as well. I mean, despite what I said about kind of some of the nitpicks I have with the story, they're not things that bother me while I'm reading it. I think it's a complete delight. Mm. Um, and like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to credit a short story its universe, and much less so a, a film or, or a longer novel. Um, the Ray Bradbury Theater episode, I like. It's of its time. Um, you yeah. know, like I said, with the with the beeping computers and and the uh, the obvious model dinosaur um, is pretty awesome. And I wanted to say, you know what? No, though, I would rather watch the movie again. But I think what would happen is if I did that, I'd get about twenty five thirty percent into the movie and throw something at my television. <laughs> so, so I'm also going to rank that one last. <laughs> I I think to be to be honest, if you wanted to see a film. Um, of A Sound of Thunder. I think you're better off watching Jurassic Park. True. No, I, th- I think Jurassic Park is a better adaptation of A Sound of Thunder than A Sound of Thunder. Hmm. I like that, actually. It's, I mean, it's, it's not what you would call a faithful adaptation, but it no, takes some of the no. core principles of, of, of little things add up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to concur with the group. Uh, and pointing out the fact that, though, the Ray Bradbury Theatre episode, I think even though it is very faithfully adapted, tends to show some things in a better light even than the movie. Hmm. Uh, when they really put you inside of Eccles' point of view when the gun is being pointed mm. at you, mm. it leaves no question as to whether or not you're going to be shot. Right. Yeah. Um, and then the, just the horror of having those uniforms and the armbands and it's like, wow, this is fascism happening right now with the guards in the room and the, the regimented, desk and, regimented desk and everything and the bad apostrophe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yes. It was, it was a very illustrated change for smashing the butterfly, right? Yeah. And in the short story, it was mentioned uh, there was a guy sitting at the desk who was not the same as he had been before. Mm-hmm. It's just this slow, creeping growth. Right. It was kind of subtle in the story versus the the, the episode, right? Yeah. And there it's very, very jarring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd be curious what would happen if... Is it possible that because the feature-length adaptation is so bad and so regarded so badly... Is it possible to remake it? Could could it be done? I think you could make another movie. I, I I wouldn't want to remake that version of the story because I think it is so horribly flawed in so many ways. Um, but I, yeah, yeah. It, it could stand being made into a film. Um, I, I'd be very interested to see somebody try and keep the same basic structure as the short story so that it ends with the, the butterfly as a revelation. But I do wonder what you would what you would need to sort of pad the story out 
to, to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. I think if they did remake it, they would have to do a different title. Because the title itself doesn't even make sense for the movie, like what Phil mm, was saying yeah. earlier. Mm-hmm. There's, there's yeah. no well, allusion to a sound. Right. And, and it's one of those things that I think to the insider who has read Ray Bradbury, we would see the title and go, oh, yeah, I totally want to see that. But mm, right. to, the, to the common fan out there, I don't think it's evocative of necessarily anything that would draw them to the theater. Yeah. And so I think rebranding it would definitely mm-hmm. be a better idea. And if for nothing else, to divorce it from the previous adaptation. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think it's also much more readily the kind of thing you could adapt into a shorter mm-hmm. form, as mm-hmm. evidenced by what already has happened. Mm-hmm. Well, should we ever come into some lottery funds, maybe we should think about one of those off-mission Kickstarters <laughs> projects. There we go. <laughs> well, I think just using your, your um, MacBook Pro here, we could probably come up with graphics to rival the 2005 adaptations. Right. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think that's just about everything then. Other than just kind of final, final questions for Phil about how to get in touch with you or the center. Well, um, I have a website, uh, which is bradburymedia.co.uk, um, which uh, I, I use to try and document all of Bradbury's media work. It, it, I've put it on the back burner quite a bit because I'm busy doing my mm-hmm. PhD, um, but it's still there as a resource, plenty of information about um, Ray's films. So bradburymedia.co.uk. And the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies has a Facebook page, uh, which I run. Um, so if you're on Facebook, just do a search um, and uh, like us, and we post interesting information on there. There's information on there at the moment about uh, an exhibition that we have that's in Indian- Indianapolis and some events to tie in with Bradbury's 95th birthday um, in August. He he would have been 95 if he'd lived. Well, we will definitely put um, links to all this in the show notes, and we will uh, make sure that our our Facebook page has liked your Facebook page, and we'll, I'm sure we'll mm. all do that as well. And right. and we'll tag whoever we need to tag when when the episode goes live. Great. Well, it's it's been great uh, joining you in this discussion. <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. I enjoyed, even though I didn't like the film, I enjoyed watching it again, uh, just to remind myself how bad it was. But also rereading the story. <laughs> um, well, it's movies can movie adaptations can fail in so many different ways it's kind of instructive to 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 see some yeah. of those right. yeah yeah we, we've all learned something from it <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah don't do that even if it's negative <laughs> <laughs> yeah. don't change anything right that was don't change anything that, that is that that is the main rule for a sound of thunder do not stray from the path yes <laughs> we might have an easier time misspelling that than anything Yes, maybe. We, we, our episode title is going to be uh, quite deliberately misspelled. <laughs> As is appropriate, I think. I think so. <laughs> so, Phil, thank you so much for joining us. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. And um, I look forward to hearing the edited version of the show. Thank you. Cool. And uh, next up for us will be Jumper by mm-hmm. Stephen Gould. Great. And uh, if if Fathom Events favors us, after that, we'll be doing The Iron Giant. So, yes, for, for the listener at home, um, you can start reading Jumper by Stephen Gould and watch the Doug Lyman-directed film. Not terrifically faithful, but <laughs> yeah, it'll give us things to talk about anyway. It will. Right. Okay, ready to sign off? Yeah. i got to come up with a blessing, right? I do. I think, I think you should come up with a blessing. Uh, let, let, let me try one, and you let me know how close I get. 
Uh, may the road rise up to meet you, and may you always have access to a Bradbury anthology. Oh, there we go. All right. Well, I guess we can sign off. All right. All right. All right. Thanks again, Phil. Thank you. Thank you again, Phil. Thank that you. was great. Thank you. Thank you. And if we uh, if we come up with more Ray Bradbury titles in the future, which we actually have been asked, and I forgot to mention that uh, Roger from the Kitchen Counter podcast was the guy who said, hey, how... How about you guys do some Bradbury? Yeah. Um, so oh, awesome. So he'll be pleased that we did this. And if we circle back and do something else, I'm, I'm sure he'd appreciate that too. Mm, excellent. Cool. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks. Have a good day. Yep. You too. Have a good evening. Or, good evening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. G- give me a run because I've, you know, I've never done this before. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll, we'll see how far I get before you go. Uh, no. Okay. You, you can stop now. Sure. The centre was set up about, I think in about, oh, excuse me, bang on cue, that's the phone. Um, somebody else will pick that up. Just give me a second. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, if all of our listeners donated a little bit, it'd be like a little mini Kickstarter or something. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. yeah. I thought you were going to say it'd be, you know, it'd buy somebody a coffee at the centre. <laughs> in our library system looking for a sound of thunder and i found a collection of shories uh, shories <laughs> <laughs> ironically i made a portmanteau out of short and stories